Uh, Democrats, of course, want to pass $3.5 trillion worth of additional spending. Now, look, let's get this, you know, a little bit straightened out here for a second. $3.5 trillion. Now, we've we've got a budget set up. We've got a, sorry, an infrastructure bill set up for $1.2 trillion. And then they want to add $3.5 trillion of additional spending to that. Now, that's for everything from increasing the child tax credit to, you know, uh, spending on electric vehicles, et cetera, so forth and so on. Okay, so that's 3.5, 1.2. You can do your math. That's 4.7. So let's just round it up to $5 trillion and make it easy. $5 trillion is cu- currently about 20% of GDP. On top of that, you still have to provide funding for everything else. So you've got to provide funding for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the debt. Um, You've got to do defense spending, Department of Education, Department of Energy, all that. That's all got to be funded as well, which is about another three to four trillion dollars. Because we use these continuing bills. So we're not talking about. 20% 20% of GDP. We're talking closer to 40 to 50% of GDP having to be issued in debt over the course of the next few months. Now, this of course this whole spending plan is spread out over 10 years, so you know, the expectations are that we're going to get some growth out of this. The problem is, is that we always expect to get growth out of these programs. And in fact, every time you get some CBO analysis, uh, Congressional Budget Office analysis, of these programs, they say, oh, yeah, well, if we do this program, then over the course of 10 years, it'll pay for itself and it'll create 2% growth or whatever, right? And it never works out. In 2000, the CBO said that in 10 years, the U.S. would be running a $1 trillion surplus based upon the programs that were instituted then. 10 years later, the U.S. economy was running a $1 trillion deficit. The Congressional Budget Office is a deeply flawed enterprise in terms of how they calculate these things. They, they leave out a tremendous amount of things that occur, and the assumptions they make are things like, well, if interest rates remain low for the next decade, if we never have a recession over the next decade, if, you know, there's a lot of ifs in there that really don't jive with reality. You could, they could they could honestly make a much better assessment of these things if they included things like sunset provisions on on certain programs, if they included a recession once or twice over a decade, you know, things that normally occur, slower, you know, uh, variations in, in economic growth, variations in interest rates, et cetera, that would make a much better budget prediction on a lot of the spending. But we don't do that because really the goal of the CBO is not to be some kind of arbitrary analysis think tank that is coming up with real assessments. They're really there to actually support what whoever's in power to provide them the ability to pass bills with this very, very flawed analysis. And look, that's not my opinion. There's tons of research papers about how flawed the analysis of CBO is. Anyway, so we want to pass this massive set of spending bills. And of course, the Democrats are in a a very deep rush to do this because they have control of the House and the Senate right now, and they can pass it on on party lines if, and this is the big if, they can get this done during the budget process. So first of all, this is why, if you've noticed, they've started reclassifying these spending programs as human infrastructure, because 
infrastructure can be included in the budgetary process. It is part of the budget. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because in order to pass this spending along party lines where you only have 51% majority vote, you have to do it under what's called the reconciliation process, which includes all this spending in the budget process and requires only a 51-vote margin. Anything else, if, if you took expanding the child tax credits or any of these other kind of, you know, um, spending programs they want to do and look at them for what they are and say, really, is this part of budget or is this some, this is kind of the wish list of, of, uh, you know, discretionary spending that we want to do. If it's not included in the budget, it has to be voted on with a 60 vote margin, which means they wouldn't get it done. So this is why there's such a big rush to try to get this all done and put together and push through during the reconciliation process of the budget so they can get it done with a 51 vote margin, which they can do if they can. And if they, of course, can get all the Democrats to agree on it, of course, Senator Joe Manchin's holding out of this saying, hey, we just passed $1.2 trillion. Can we slow down a little bit here and look at what we're spending? That's a moderate. That's a Democrat saying, hey, let's look at, you know, I'm a little bit worried about the debt. Let's slow down here and look at what we're spending. But see, this is uh, he, he's a rare animal for a Democrat. There's a few Democrats. He's a senator, of course. And there's a few Democrats in the House that are also starting to kind of push back against the spending. Why? Because they have to go home to their states to get reelected come 2022. That's right around the corner. In fact, we're, we're about to head into, in, in the next month or so, we will get into the campaign seasons for these reelections of these candidates for the 2022 uh, midterms. And there's a lot riding on those midterms. There's a real risk that Democrats could lose control of the House or the Senate. There's not a big margin, so it wouldn't take a tremendous amount of change uh, to see that flip. Philadelphia is a good example of that. It's already starting to show signs of really kind of moving back towards the right there. So there's a potential risk of seat loss across several states in the, in the country for the Democrats. So that's why there's this big rush to try to get the spending done. Well, in order to try to appease some of the Democrats, the spending problem has got to be met with a revenue problem. Got to increase some revenue. And how do you increase revenue? Well, you increase revenue by raising taxes. So yesterday, the tax reform came out. And what the Democrats are proposing here is a 20, uh, uh, the, want to take the current tax rate from 21% to 26.5% for corporations. Now, remember, uh, taxes were lowered on corporate taxes to 21% during the last administration. And they also want to start raising the top tax rates to 397 Now, that is supposedly going to raise about $2.2 trillion in taxes over the next 10 years. So I'm going to spend $3.5 trillion plus $1.2 trillion. So I'm going to spend $4.7 trillion and raise $2.2 trillion in taxes. Doesn't really add up when then, of course, on top of that, you have to add all the other spending. So you're way short of your goal of getting anywhere close to being even sort of kind of maybe in the ballpark of being revenue neutral. Of course, the debt that you increase deters economic growth which means you get slower rates of economic growth. And as you get slower rates of economic growth, you get less in tax revenue collection because you're growing at a slower rate, which means that your estimate of $2.2 probably comes in less than that. 
So interesting, though, there's a there's a sideline to this story that may actually come back to bite the Democrats on their own plans. Because under the new tax proposal that they're proposing, the top tax rate in New York City will be 61.2% and 59.7% in California. Those are your two big primary holdouts for Democrats. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, you've got New York and you've got California. If you go back to look at elections and look at what states actually elect presidents, it's Florida, New York, California, Texas, your big populous city coastline states, because that's where the bulk of the population is. And you're about to attack your two primary voting blocks, New York and California, with outrageously high tax rates. That may not work well. We'll see. Of course, you've got to, you know, kind of understand how the Democrats think anyway. Uh, AOC just went to a $50,000 per ticket party, not wearing a mask, by the way, wearing a dress that says tax the rich. But she went to hung out, you know, to hang out with the rich because, look, let's be honest, everybody wants to hang out with rich people. <laughs> they have the best parties. I mean, come on. <laughs> But this is the problem, right? You know, what the Democrats and what Republicans both tell you is that, you know, we've got to solve these problems. And the only way we can solve these problems is to take more from the rich that already pay 90% of the taxes. And we've talked about before, the taxes, the tax rates are not the problem. The problem is your, you know, inability to control your spending and to spend productively and You've got to reform the tax code. You've simply got too many rules and regulations that are used to reduce the amount of tax paid, loopholes, write-offs, you know, these type of things. You don't need to actually change the tax rate. You need to change the code. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday. But the real problem is, and again, you can take 100% of all the wealth of the top 10% of the people in the country— just let's just tomorrow, let's just pass a bill. Let's take every dollar of asset that they have and put it all in the debt. You won't even put a debt, a dent in the debt that, that's currently outstanding, even if you take all their money. But then what are you going to do next year? Because everything that you pay off, all the other debt, the other 90% of it that's still left is still accruing interest. It's got to be paid and you've got more spending. But now who are you going to tax? You just took all of their money. So the thing that always eludes our congressional leaders is not changing tax rates. It's not changing and reforming who we take more money from. It's ultimately how we're spending it and where the money's coming from. And this idea that we can spend into deficits with no consequence. The problem is, is there is mounting evidence that deficits matter and they matter a lot. Be right back after the break. So it's interesting. When Janet Yellen was uh, Treasury Secretary, she made the statement that we would not have another financial crisis in our lifetimes. 
And which was interesting. I wrote an article <laughs> that because of her age, maybe it wouldn't happen in her lifetime, but it would probably happen in our lifetime. Um, but yet, nonetheless, um, we had a financial crisis, right? 2020. The point is that there's a lot of confidence in the world that we are giving to the Federal Reserve and to our leaders in power that they can solve all these problems. And that if you'll just trust them, they can fix them for you, right? With enough spending, we can fix anything. And this has really kind of been the call to arms now for the last 20 years, which has been, well, if we just spend more, we can fix the problem. In fact, the financial crisis that occurred, if we, you know, Paul Krugman even said, well, if we would have just spent more during the financial crisis, everything would have been better if we would have just gone into more debt. And, you know, it certainly seems to be the case that, particularly over the last, you know, 12 years, it's been a tremendously strong bull market, but the economy really hasn't grown that well. We've had this massive divergence between the, the top 1% of income earners and everybody else. And so while it may seem on the surface that things are working and that deficits don't matter, the further and the longer that we go, the more evidence is mounting that deficits do matter. And it's always interesting because when we take a look back in history, we'll realize the mistake that we made. But, you know, right now everybody says, well, look at Japan, right? 250% of debt to GDP and they're doing great. They're not doing great. The young can't get jobs. They live at home with their parents because they can't find incomes to support the living standards. And again, when you're talking about living in very small spaces, I wouldn't say that their economic vitality is as robust as it could be. And look, when we take a look at what's happening in America, right, we've got bigger and bigger divisions between people and parties and religions and you name it, right? It's just growing more and more. And this isn't just because of some rhetoric that's being spun out from the media or whatever. The root cause of this is the is the financial distress that occurs. If people are happy, they don't riot in the streets. They don't burn down buildings. They don't turn over cars. They don't do these type of things if they're generally happy. They're making enough money to support their family. They're able to put a little bit of money in the bank. Their kids are ha happy, healthy, etc. You don't. You, if, if your populace is happy, they don't riot. And this goes back throughout history, right? You know, before kings and queens have lost their heads, they took advantage of the population until the point that the population said, enough. That's throughout history, right? We see this repeated over and over again. Those in power start to take advantage of those that pay the bills until the point that those that pay the bills say, enough. And then things change and typically change pretty rapidly, but... You know, this is the, the problem that we're in today. We have this definite division of wealth, and this is leading to bigger and bigger problems within the country. Of course, we've got slower economic growth, which is also eroding the underlying structure of the economy. And this can all be tied back directly to deficits. If we go back to 1980 and look forward 
And again, this isn't hard to do. I've, I've got an, I'm going to write an article on this uh, coming out in the next week or uh, I think next Monday, talking about this very thing. Is that it's easy to deny currently that deficits matter, right? We just say deficits don't matter. Everything's fine, right? I mean, we're we're doing you know what we believe to be tr tremendously well right now. We've got the economy growing. We're spending all kinds of money, and that's just going to help everybody. We're going to give people checks. It's awesome. But if we go back and look at what's happened with economic growth, wealth disparities, wages, productivity, things that make a difference for people and how they live and how they support their families, those have all gotten worse, not better. If we take a look at how we spend money and who it benefits versus who it doesn't, you can see a direct relationship to our deficits and our debt. And it's interesting because, as I was saying before the break, you know, AOC, she's, she goes to this party and $50,000 a ticket. Now, how many people do you personally know that can spend $50,000 on a ticket to go to a party? Now, she didn't pay it, by the way, right? <laughs> but she shows up in this dress called Tax the Rich, right? And that's, that's fine. Let's go tax those evil rich people because they do need to pay more, right? We need to tax them more money. But what's the consequence of that action? But here's the point here is that ultimately when we talk about the issue of tax the rich, when we talk about the issue of who's paying taxes and what those taxes are being used for, we're not having the right conversation. And again, that conversation has to be a balance between those on the right and those on the left. And the middle ground has to be somewhat related to reality. And that's where we start to say, hey, if we're spending money, are we spending it productively? And if we're going to spend this money, how are we going to pay for it? Now, see, at the end of the day, I don't think people really have a problem paying taxes as much if they know the money is being used in a way that would benefit them. And this is one of the arguments that I get more often than not. Somebody will say, well, you know, I couldn't run my business if the government hadn't built the roads, the bridges, the highways, and, and, and all that stuff that I use in order to run my business. That's true. But that's their job. The one thing we can all agree on, and the one thing that nobody will argue, is that infrastructure and natural, national security is the job of the federal government. But that's all their job is. Their job is not education. Their job is not healthcare. Their job is not um, energy regulation. Their job is not any of those. those. Those jobs belong to the states in which those entities reside. We've gotten off track along the way of putting more and more of our problems and more and more of the work into the hands of our federal government to say, you know better than me and how to spend money. And that's not really the case. Those in Washington know very little about the ongoings in Texas and what happens here. They know very little about what happens in Wyoming or Idaho or Michigan or Alabama or Tennessee or Florida or California. 
See, most people wouldn't have pay, would, wouldn't mind paying taxes as long as the taxes are being used for productive purposes. In other words, things that actually returned a value back on the dollar invested. So if you think about the government like a business, so to speak, if the government invested into the country, the country would be stronger. But we don't do that. And what we have done over the last 40 years in particular is divest more and more of that responsibility that should be in control of the states, like education, to the power of the government, which, again, this is a group of fallible individuals. You've got roughly, you know, 330 individuals running an entire country. And this is just a, a problem that ultimately, when we get really down into, into it, how do these individuals know what is best for a country of 330 million people? And then to make the appropriate spending decisions along the way. And this is why we wind up wasting so much money on things that don't create a positive rate of return. And this is why with taxes in particular. We keep arguing over tax rates, but we're not arguing over the use of the money once we tax it. The only reason that we're wanting to raise taxes now is so we can foster, we want to raise $2.2 trillion in taxes so we can spend $3.5 trillion. And actually, that's not even true. We want to raise $2.2 trillion in taxes so we can spend $5 trillion. Think about the logic of that. And this is why deficits matter, because ultimately all that money that's spent on non-productive purposes has a cost. And that cost has to come at the expense of something else. And that something else is economic growth, productivity. And when that starts to slow down, there's a chain effect that occurs as companies have to start suppressing wages and suppressing costs. And, and, and that comes at the expense of jobs, which we start to automate those jobs and outsource jobs for lower costs. All that is affected ultimately at some point by the deficits. Be right back after the break. So as I started out the last segment talking about talking about deficits and debt and why this this is important in taxes because again you know as I started out the segment saying you know Janet Yellen said nobody saw you know she saw no chance of another financial crisis in a lifetime and then in 2020 we had another financial crisis and look we're gonna have another one and then we're gonna have another one after that because of what we're doing we're creating structural fragility in both the economy and the financial markets. And this is the thing that those in power don't understand, is that the more that you do, the more fragility you put into the system because eventually the system is going to be so clogged up with debt that you just can't support the growth rate to handle that debt. And this is the one thing that you know, investors miss. And, and this, is, this is one of the fallacies of, of modern monetary theory. One of the theories behind modern, modern, modern monetary theory is that the government's debt is somebody else's asset. So it's basically trying to use an accounting mechanism to say that it doesn't really matter what the government does because whatever the government does, somebody else has the asset. So it's just, it's just an accounting function is all it is. And at the end of the day, it's just a zero income. 
right? It just balances out. So it really doesn't matter how much debt or deficit that the country runs because as the country spends more money, somebody else has the asset. But that's not exactly the way that it works. And the more money that we spend, yes, there is technically an asset there because you're issuing a bond to raise that capital and somebody owns that capital. But that's not necessarily somebody in the U.S. We have a lot of foreign buyers of our, corporate, uh, of our government bonds. Those assets are held by other countries that then take capital out of our system in terms of their income, right? When they get the interest income on the debt, that goes out of the country into those countries. So when that money flows into those countries, it benefits their economy, not ours. The other side of the coin is, is that 90, probably 99% of your households don't own treasury bonds. Treasury bonds are owned by institutions, pension funds, high net worth individuals, etc. So yeah, they receive an income stream on those bonds, but that doesn't really go to affect the economy. So just because there seems to be a accounting mechanism behind this doesn't mean that's how it really works in the system. There's a lot of other things that are going on, and this is why we continue to have slower rates of economic growth. This is why we have, you know, the, 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 we talk about the impact of deficits and inflation and why we keep having very low rates of inflation over time. And we have to keep lowering interest rates just in order to support economic growth. Now, this is the key word. We're just trying to support economic growth, not actually create economic growth. Now, those are two different things. And so... The next financial crisis that we have will simply just be another function of the same thing that caused the last financial crisis. Yes, it's going to be slightly different. It may not be a mortgage-related crisis, but it'll be something debt-related, ultimately. And this is why every time we have a downturn in the markets, we have to keep bailing out who? The banks. We have to keep bailing out companies that spend all their capital enriching themselves through stock buybacks and through corporate executive compensation, et cetera, they enrich themselves. And then when they get in trouble, they don't have any capital to save themselves. This is why when we had the, the downturn in 2020, we had to go bail out airlines and we had to bail out cruise ships because they had spent a, almost a decade spending all of their revenue on stock buybacks rather than saving up for a rainy day you know, having a coffer there just in case something would happen. Making good investments into technology and people and, and increasing wages and supporting economic growth. No, they, they kept all that capital for themselves. And so as soon as the market turned down, they were like, well, we're going to go out of business if we don't get some money from the government. So we had to go bail them all out. My favorite, of course, is the banks, right? Because after 2008, we had to bail out the banks. Like, well, if we don't bail out the major banks, we're going to have a major financial crisis and uh, we'll never recover from it. If you ever watched the movie with Shia LaBeouf called uh, it's Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, it's a sequel to the original Wall Street with Michael Douglas. Shows the boardroom of all the major banks sitting around with Hank Paulson during the financial crisis. 
And Goldman Sachs, the guy playing playing the head of Goldman Sachs at the time, says, well, if you don't bail us out, though, everything is just, you know, gone. So we bailed them out. And then we do these stress tests, right? Every year after, it's like, well, let's see how they're doing financially. Oh, they're great. They've got plenty of capital. It's all fine. Then the next time we have a downturn, we have to go bail them out again. And we have to keep doing this process. We have to keep bailing them out just to keep them in business because they're not financially healthy. The economy's not financially healthy. This is why we have to keep bailing out everything. But see, we want to keep putting all the blame on rich people and saying, hey, we just need to go tax them more. They'll solve our problem. No, that's not the problem. The problem is you're spending too much. Your tax revenue is fine. You're collecting almost $3.9 trillion in taxes every year. Get your spending in line with what you're collecting first. Then let's start talking about adjusting tax rates. But see, this is just not the way we think because we've gotten so used to just deficit spending because it's easy, right? I don't want to do the hard work because the hard work is not electable. Social Security, uh, Social Security uh, Board of Trustees recent report, Social Security is going to basically have to cut benefits by 2034. We should probably do something about that. Well, let's raise taxes. <laughs> no, you've got more people going. You've got a $170 trillion unfunded liability with Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. You can't raise enough taxes to fix that problem. You need more people paying into the system, period. You're going to have to cut benefits, period. Raise retirement ages, period. That's all you can do. And that's probably still not going to be enough, but at least you can increase the survivability of the Social Security pension funds into the future. The other part you're going to have to do with it is you're going to have to cut off a lot of the benefits you pay out. We pay out benefits from Social Security for people who are, are not even needing to be on Social Security. We have just used that basket as an easy place to go to to get money so we can fund all these other programs. You know, illegal immigrants come here. We put them on Social Security. We bring in people uh, from other countries. We put them on Social Security. We give that we just we use this as kind of a grab bag of money for all these other social spending programs, which, look, it's fine, but you got to pay for it. And that's what I'm saying is that if you want to fix it, you've got to fix the problem. But the choices are very hard and they're not fun and they're certainly not reelectable. Because as soon as you start telling somebody in their late 50s that they're not going to have to be able to collect their Social Security until they're 72, <laughs> you're not getting reelected. If you tell somebody that's on Social Security that you have to cut their pension benefit, you're not getting reelected. But. Again, we've, as we've said before, the next crisis will happen, right? We're going to have another we're going to have another crisis. Will it be a financial crisis? Will it be who knows? Nobody knows what it'll be. But we're going to have another crisis. And this will compound the problem of all these unfunded liabilities, this deficit-driven spending because we have to do more of it to bail out the next crisis. At some point, you've got to start letting the crises do their job which is to revert these excesses and to create the demand to fix these problems so that you won't have them in the future. A recession, as we've said before, a recession is simply a function of reverting the excesses. 
and we stopped we and, and and starting in 2008 we decided that that's not a good thing to happen so now instead of allowing the process of the reversion of excesses to occur allowing people to file for bankruptcy allowing people to get out from under their debt doing these type of things to help them get a better fresh start going forward we've not allowed that to happen in fact we just keep them burdened with more debt and we're paying the consequence for that now eventually it's going to happen It'll be by force, it'll be terrible, and it won't matter what we do to try to fix it. The reversion is going to happen by itself. It's happened every time in history. So as always is the case, we have the choice, we have the opportunity right now to make some decisions that we could start to slowly fix these problems, right? Start slowly adjusting our spending, start bringing down the amount of deficit spending that we're doing, leave, you know, trying to, to maximize the tax revenue that we have coming in, start adjusting what we need to do with Social Security. There's some great plans that have been fostered out there from a variety of institutions talking about how to fix Social Security to at least make it last longer. We can make those choices now, which are a lot less painful, but we don't want to do that. So what causes the next crisis? Who knows? Nobody will see it coming. Nobody saw the last one coming. Even Janet Yellen, who said we'd never have one in our lifetimes again, didn't see it coming. It Could it be another pandemic? Sure. Could it be another government-driven shutdown of the economy? Absolutely. Could it be a credit issue? Probably. But whatever it is, it'll have the same effect on the economy. And we'll probably respond exactly as we've done before. The only problem is, is that every time we do this, we continue to exacerbate the gap between the rich and everyone else. That wraps up the show for the day. I'm your host, Science Roberts. Be back here tomorrow for the Wednesday edition. We'll pick up with Danny Ratliff. Be sure to get by the website today. Are there too many bears calling for a market turndown? That's on our website right now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow. I had a little money It's a rich man's world It's a rich man's world